So Dr. Valdez, let me ask you, what is the most important takeaway you want men to hear today? I think there's a very strong messaging out there from, from Hollywood, from, you know, huge pharmaceutical companies that have a direct financial interest in sidelining dads from the birth and breastfeeding process. And if there's one thing that I would advocate for, it's for men to step into that role as the protector and the provider, be educated, go to the Lamaze classes, go to these OB visits, you know, have the awkward conversations and you're going to expose some ignorance that you had, you know, you, you, we don't know everything (laughs) as much as we think we know our wives. There's more to learn. There's more to understand. Talk to her and understand what she's doing, but be an active participant in this thing. Don't let anybody tell you, you can't have an opinion about this. You don't have a role in this because what you've described is a wish that was more the norm for dads defending the birth team from naysayers and advocating for connection and presence right after birth. And that those are all things that anybody can do. You don't have to have any special skill set or anything. I'm not special. I don't have any unique expertise other than I, I've gone into the research, I've formed these opinions that now more than ever, we need dads who are engaged, who are informed, and who are committed to matching their wives in their efforts to bring this into the world, and who are there and present, you know, consciously, present time conscious of what their wife is going through. And yeah, you might miss a few sports games, you might not be able to go out with your buddies, you know, for a little bit, but it'll be worth it, because you'll never get those formative moments back. And if you're present for those, you'll never regret that. Here's the million dollar question. How do men like us reach our full potential and grow into the men we dream of being while taking care of our responsibilities, working, being good husbands, fathers, and still take care of ourselves? That's the question. This podcast will help you with those answers. My name is Brent and welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast. Welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast, your home for all things man, husband, and father. Big shout out to Fallible Nation. A warm welcome to our first time listeners. My name is Brent, and today my special guest is chiropractic physician, best-selling author, Dr. Caleb Valdez. Dr. Valdez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. It's good to be here. Now, let me ask right off the bat, am I pronouncing that right? That's right. Yep, that's all correct. (laughs) Okay, because I have a habit of mispronouncing names, so I want to make sure before we go on with the show. Now, Dr. Valdez, I don't do big interviews because that doesn't tell anybody. I can read off accolades. It just doesn't help anybody. Tell us in your own words, who is Dr. Caleb Valdez? I am a chiropractic physician, just like you said, a brand new published author as of last month. And I'm really passionate about birth and pregnancy-related chiropractic. I'm surprisingly not a husband and a father yet, but that allows me to talk to the difference kind of between the ideal and what we all hope to have happen and the reality of the situation on the ground. So I've got a lot of thoughts on birth and pregnancy, but just know right up front that I don't speak particularly from direct experience other than having, you know, experience with thousands of patients and babies, pregnant moms throughout that have kind of informed my philosophy on birth and new motherhood and fatherhood and that kind of angle. So fair enough. Now, guys, we're not going to go deep into Dr. Valdez's book. There will be a link to that in the show notes as always. So you guys can find that book and dig in that. That's called Starving Babies, which is a really disturbing title just to start off the bat with. Just saying, but we're not going to go deep into that today. We are going to get deeper into your passions though. So, you know, right off the bat, I hate doing cookie cutter questions, but I've got to ask, you're a male chiropractor. 
how did you get into discussing birthing and breastfeeding? So actually what got me into chiropractic initially was my niece was diagnosed with a genetic condition that chiropractic can help with that was identified very early on. And so I knew going into my doctoral program that I wanted to specialize in this syndrome. It's called Prader-Willi syndrome, PWS, and work with often premature births and stressed pregnancies and very stressed little nervous systems once they get here. So that became my passion of just working with these babies. And from there kind of developed this pediatric philosophy and approach. And with recent formula shortages and things that have been going on in this country, really wanted to help parents get upstream of a lot of the problems that they're seeing right off the bat. And so that's where that all started from. I have entered this conversation kind of nationally with a lot of different groups and a lot of moms who are passionate about it. And there's just not a lot of guys that are speaking to this process right now, which I think is half the battle. We need to be allies and we need to have this discussion. Really early on in the whole publishing process, I asked my roommate, I said, hey, am I mansplaining breastfeeding birth to, you know, you'd let me know if I was just that big of an idiot, right? He just laughed about it. He says, well, if you're not, somebody else is mansplaining everything else to them. And so you might as well be an ally and advocate for these moms and this process here. And I thought, man, that's so great. I wish more dads did that because we need all of us. All right. Fair enough. Now, there are a lot of people in society saying men have really no role or say in birth, breastfeeding, or early child care. Why do you believe so strongly that this is wrong? You're right. That is kind of the narrative right now. I was watching a sitcom the other day just while we were making dinner and things, and it was an episode about one of the main characters is having birth. And it's interesting how Hollywood depicts uh, the husband throughout this whole thing. He's just frazzled. He's sitting in the waiting room. He's trying not to hear about anything that, you know, any uncomfortable topic or anything related to the birth of his child. I thought, man, who else would be better to advocate for that mom? She's in one of the most vulnerable positions right now, medically, physically, personally, emotionally. She needs the man there with her to support her and strengthen her and advocate for her. And so that's where I want to kind of raise the standards of what we expect from dads. We should be comfortable discussing these topics. We should come in informed and with opinions on these discussions. We should be having these conversations early on in pregnancy and throughout delivery. And then get dads need to be there postpartum. And that might not be convenient for a nine to five work life or, you know, all the stuff that we have going on. But birth is a life changing event for mom and for baby. And it definitely should be for dad as well. This is such a weird conversation to me just because I have two daughters and I was there beside my wife through the entire thing, advocating for her. We had already talked about everything that she wanted, that we wanted as far as the birthing process. Like I threw a nurse out of the room. <laughs> Like I, I literally <laughs> said, you can leave or I'll walk around side of this bed and I will walk you out myself. Get out and do not come back. You're not welcome in here because she just, she kept trying to push. My wife didn't want, and I can't remember what it's called when they do the deep penetration into the spine for pain numbing. Uh-huh. Like epidural? Yes. That's it. Thank you. She yeah. didn't want an epidural. She was very solid about that. And this older nurse kept pushing for it and kept pushing for it. And it was finally, it was like, get out. I don't want to see you again. I looked at the doctor. I said, I don't want to see her in here again. She is not allowed in this room or I will walk her out of here. You know, wow. I can't imagine leaving my wife during that ordeal. So it's a really strange conversation to me. And it's disconcerting to me that it's having to be a conversation that 
this isn't just kind of a natural state of things. But hey, we're going to go down that rabbit hole, I promise. But before we go too deep into it, I want to ask you, if you could have a conversation with one person, living or dead, who and why? Boy, that's a good one. And it changes every day, I think, just depending on what thought kind of pops up in my head. Today, I've really been going into kind of, um, I've been doing some biblical research on the Assyrian conquest of Jerusalem. And so I would really be interested in talking to Isaiah right before the Assyrians wiped out Israel and just say, what was going through your head? How do you reach these people? Why did you choose the message that you did? They didn't listen to you, obviously, because they got wiped <laughs> out. But what would you have done differently? Or what would you say to somebody who is trying to get that point across, but seems like nobody's listening? So that would be a fascinating conversation. I love Bible history. And Isaiah is a fascinating book on its own. But uh, there are a couple of those Old Testament prophets, man, that I'm not sure I want to talk to. <laughs> They're pretty intense guys. Just those conversations don't always go well for the other people on the end of that conversation. And <laughs> I certainly don't want one of them picking apart my failings. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. That's true. It'd be a little intimidating. <laughs> for sure. I like to ask just because it gives me a sense more of who you are and uh, lets our audience have some insights into who you are and the way you think. Now... For an expectant father, what conversations do you think we should be having with our partners leading up to birth? Well, I think it could even start before that, before conception or even before marriage. If you want to just make sure that you're philosophically aligned on a lot of those issues, lean into some of the harder conversations that people really kind of avoid out of politeness or political correctness now ask her, you know, how she feels about what would you do with home birth? Or I remember a couple years ago when COVID was just crazy, a lot of my really solid friends, you know, that they had never really discussed the idea of what if we can't have a hospital birth without being separated from our newborn for two weeks after birth? How are we going to navigate a forced quarantine, basically? And a lot of them decided we're just going to birth at home or we're going to go to a birth center or something where they don't have those restrictions in place. And that created some controversy and some anxiety, I'm sure, on, on one or both parties. And those are the things where you should kind of explore that ahead of time and just be like, okay, how much do I have confidence in my wife's divine ability to birth a human? And how much does she have confidence in herself for that? And where can I kind of compensate or support her in those areas where she might not feel completely safe or ready for that. You can talk about circumcision, you can talk about vaccines, you can talk about all these things that why wait until the moment of to have this really rushed, hurried decision in the room, make parenting a strategy, a lifelong arc that's going to say, okay, how do we feel about homeschooling? How do we feel about, you know, diet decisions at the house or things like that. And those can all be discussions that you have during courtship and early marriage before there's even kids involved just to make sure that you're both equally yoked and pulling the same direction philosophically. And that way, when the thing comes up, it's more a matter of how we implement what we both believe rather than figuring out what this person believes while the whole time you've just been discussing the latest Netflix special or whatever. You know, I think that's a fantastic approach. I used to do, I've done a little premarital counseling for couples. I used to be a youth minister. And that, that's the first thing I tell couples is like, okay, all those conversations that you would never have with the person you're dating, those are the ones you actually need to have. Yeah. <laughs> do you know how they celebrate Christmas? How their family does? Is it a big thing or a little thing? Do you know, you know, how you feel about school and education for children eventually? Do y'all want the same amount of children? You know, all these yeah. conversations you don't have when you're dating. 
and very few people even have once they get engaged if you can start having those conversations early on i think that helps the marriage general not just the parenting aspect of it right we Absolutely. can start to open those lines of communication early because there are some you know i know people we're not big christmas people but i got no problem with it i just it was it isn't that big of a deal to me right but i know people like it is life or death and if you don't align with that man you are in for a long hard marriage or a really short one depending on how that goes yeah one thing i usually don't share is how impactful the podcast has been for me personally there's a lot i love and appreciate because i have the podcast I become somebody who can approach people easier. I have a better network of people to call upon when I need them. I get to meet new people all the time from all walks of life and all over the globe and connect with them at a deeper level. And I have a voice to do what I love. I'm always put into situations where I'm having to stretch and learn something new. I've really grown as a person and a professional since I started doing my podcast. And that was even before my show really started growing. I hired a company called Grow Your Show, who's our sponsor, by the way. And I wanted to share them with you. The owner, Adam, has one of the very best podcasts for teaching you how to be a podcaster. I honestly wish I had found it sooner. One thing that they've done to help me is to bring me to a much larger listener base so that my voice is being heard around the world. There's a good chance, in fact, that they helped us connect. But they also do editing and post-production. They can even help you launch and start your podcast, which could really help you in your business or whatever you're trying to achieve. So I just wanted to give them a quick shout out. I love to share great people and companies that I believe in that I use personally. So that's Grow Your Show at growyourshow.com. I have a link in the show notes. And if you have a podcast or you want to start a podcast or you're thinking about it, just scroll down there, click that link and go work with my friend, Adam. He's going to treat you right. Now, let me ask you, leading up to the birth, right? What can we as men be doing to prepare and support our partner more effectively, do you think? Because this is scary. Like I, I'm a dad, I've been through it twice and it's scary. Like even with the second child, I was a little more prepared, but I was still scared out of my mind and every pregnancy is slightly different. So what can we be doing leading up to that? Cause I know a lot of young expectant fathers who are just like, I don't know what I do. I don't know what I do. I, where do I fit in this process? Absolutely. So starting with that, the fear, I think, is a, the fear of the unknown or of the unfamiliar. And so turn that into curiosity and start asking questions, start doing your research on those things that you're most concerned about. And you'll start to realize that a lot of that fear is culturally propagated from people who have a financial stake in you being scared enough to seek out their services, their expertise or whatever. And really all they're selling is the illusion of security. You feel like because you're in a certain environment or you have access to certain resources that all of the guesswork is taken out of this, all the faith, all of the chance and everything. Birthing a human is a risky business. It's an intense experience and it's supposed to be that way because there are emotions and there's bonding that occurs between a husband and wife and between their children at that stage of that development that is going to form the basis of a family unit going forward. And so acknowledge that and lean into those types of conversations and say, how can we have the most connected experience? How can we make sure we're on the same side of this issue going forward? Because there's going to be a lot of decision points along the way and a lot of opportunities. There's going to be unforeseen things that come up 
But as long as you have this guiding principle or philosophy in place, and you both agreed to these things, you can tackle those as they come up. And it gives you not a false sense of security or a false sense of control, but you have a sense of direction as you navigate those questions. You also have to realize that your wife is undergoing a lot of physiological and hormonal changes. We joke about those things, you know, about pregnancy cravings and things like that, but they're very real things. And the approach I think should be for dads to, okay, honey, if you're giving up this, so, you know, for this time, for our baby's health or whatever, what can I sacrifice as well? How can I do this with you? I'm not going to sit here and eat what I want or do whatever I want when you're making those sacrifices, how can we be equally yoked in this place? And that also has to do with like endocrine disrupting chemicals. For example, if mom is working really hard to clean up her environment and dad's spraying on Axe body spray every morning, it's going to derail her efforts, you know, to keep a clean and connected environment there. And so talk about those things and say, okay, how crunchy do we want to get with this? How purists do we want to be on what we're eating, what we're drinking, what we're consuming, you know, as far as the conversations we're having, the entertainment we're seeking out. And if we need to make sacrifices, let's do those together so that we're in this in every way, except I may not physically be building a baby inside me, but I can support you as you do that. I'll paint your toes, I'll tie your shoes, I'll rub your feet. You know, whatever those small acts are, they add up and they result in mom feeling supported and affirmed as she enters the delivery room. And just like your experience, we need a dad who's not afraid to kick out a member of the birth team because in that, the intense moment of that, one little look, one little suggestion that is off topic or off desires, that can derail the whole thing. It's a very vulnerable time. And mom is not in a position to to kick out a nurse, you know, at that moment. But a dad should be, and he should know what the birth plan looks like and be willing to go to bat for her on that. And I realize there's single mom households. There's all types of situations, but there's always an opportunity for a family member, for a father, a brother, a sister, a mom to be there and advocate for a wife going through that. But the divine template, the ideal situation would be have another the man there to do that. Now, let me backtrack that for just a second. This is kind of a side topic, but we explain the Axe body spray thing. Just <laughs> well, so I used to use Axe. I use different deodorant now. And my wife's got me using non-aluminum deodorant <laughs> stuff that's supposed to be better for me. But way to go, <laughs> Sarah's on it. She's smart. But yeah. I don't. For most of us, right? I mean, Axe body spray is a Axe is a big player in the game, right? So Absolutely. I mean, we've seen cologne our whole lives. It's, and smelly deodorant. So what kind of negative impact can, is that? What does that bring to the table? So there's a whole studies coming out right now that are showing how much testosterone levels are falling across the world and right. sperm motility and basically every ma- measure of toxic masculinity. We're, we're becoming more feminized and emasculated as a society. And a lot of that is a physiological chemical disruption that is disconnecting men's endocrine systems and that nervous system that communicates that does all that stuff. So this is a very personal area of figuring out how crunchy, how clean, how purist you want to be with all that. But making one switch from maybe cutting out Axe body spray and switching to non-aluminum type, you know, deodorants, that is freeing up that much more of that system to deal with the toxic load that we have right now. I mentioned a couple different endocrine disruptors, which are just these chemicals that disrupt how your body talks to itself and very strong smelling chemicals. And I just threw out Axe, I'm probably gonna get emails (laughs) from their exec team now, but there's chemicals that disrupt those natural processes for men and for women. 
And women, because they use more products on a daily basis, you know, with cosmetics and things, they're more susceptible to those types of toxic loads. And those definitely affect baby's endocrine system and breast milk supply when it comes in. That's why a lot of moms are not able to establish a good supply is because our environment is so polluted with these strong smelling chemicals. It's really, you know, we have detergents, we have just all kinds of things that are blocking up and disconnecting our systems. And when you start eliminating those things and getting back to basics and really pure things that you wear, things that you eat, your body does so much better with that. But I'm not here to preach on, on what products are best or anything like that. That's a very personal decision. And I think it is a something you should guys should talk about as you go to the store, what kind of laundry detergent we're going to buy, what types of food are we going to stock in the fridge so that we can be the most connected with our bodies and have that free flowing. So well, just, that's my crunchy chiropractic side coming out. I had to back that up because like, wait, I there's something wrong with it. I used to like, I didn't ever go heavy because I was never a big cologne guy. But it was like, you know, after after I got out of the gym and I didn't have time to go take a shower or something, right? Oh, it yeah. never occurred to me that was something that was bad for my body, or much less lowering my test. Like all you had to do was slap lowers testosterone over that and like i'll throw out 90 percent of the stuff in my household if i need to and you probably would <laughs> it just never would have occurred to me that could actually impact me in that way mm -hmm. so okay that's disturbing guys throw out your junk <laughs> throw, throw out all the nasty smelly junk oh that's sad <laughs> that's okay i'm yeah. pretty sure we like it more than women do <laughs> I'm sure they're appreciative of not smelling our post-junk, post-gym funk, you know, afterwards. I don't know. I know some women who, they like the mix of, as long as it's not too bad, right? Yeah. A little sweat's good, too it's much sweat's like bad, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, before we roll to our break, I want to ask you, you know, how do we approach the conversation about breastfeeding with our partners? Because that's like taboo, right? That's the woman's decision, and we have no say in that kind of nonsense right? That's what we're told. And how do we approach, like, I had very strong feelings about it. My wife was very open to it because she wanted to do the breastfeed anyways. But how do we approach something that we're told is none of our business like that? Because I think that's a really important conversation. I know I've, I've read enough studies to understand and I'm not highly educated, but I've read enough studies, enough studies for idiots to go, hey, this seems to be really much a healthier choice for my child. How do we approach that with our spouse? I think it it spills over into everything that, that men should and can have informed opinions on all of these topics. I don't know why it's taboo, and I think we need to challenge that assumption from the beginning as well. And hopefully you're married to somebody who is okay having that respectful conversation. We definitely need to respect mom's wishes. It's at the end of the day, it's her body, and it, it is a big decision. But this is half your child, and you guys should kind of collaborate on that. And there should be a give and take. And I want more couples to be aware of the benefits of breastfeeding so that they know what they're giving up if they decide to do that. And I 100% respect, I think first and foremost is freedom of speech. You should be able to talk about this and not be banned, censored, shamed for that. Second of all would be informed consent. You need to know the benefits of that and what you're giving up if you decide to sacrifice that. And you should have a very clear, open communication on on the topic itself with medical experts if you need or with research as needed to make a good decision. And then third, I'm for medical autonomy. I think parents are the ones that should be making the health decisions for their kids, period, full stop. Medical experts, anybody else on the outside looking in, their job is to affirm and inform and then to just sit back and respect those wishes and make that happen, whatever that looks like. And the reality is not every mom can breastfeed. And going back to some of those 
endocrine disrupting chemicals. Maybe that's why. But for the moms that want to, that choose to, that needs to be a discussion before pregnancy, I would say. A lot of times you just focus on getting up to birth and then we decide what we're, how we're going to feed this baby once it right. gets here. Right. And I think we could start a little earlier on in the process and say, okay, postpartum, here's what this looks like. I'm going to take this feeding or mom's going to pump for this. We're going to bottle feed for here. And she's going to, you know, however that works and however that looks for each family is going to be very personal and unique and different. But that's something that we should be up to discussing before the moment arrives, I think. Oh my goodness. Intentionality. No, say it's not so, right? right? <laughs> Guys, we got straight in it right off the bat today with Dr. Valdez. In the second half of the show, we're going to get moved into men's role post-birth, postpartum depression, and even early parenting. We'll see if I can talk today. We're going to roll our sponsors right now, and we'll be back with more with Dr. Valdez. How well do you sleep at night? Do you toss and turn and wake up more tired than when you went to bed? Sleep is commonly one of the critical elements people fall short on in their life. The quality of sleep you get directly affects your ability to control your weight, your ability to add muscle, your stress levels, and your everyday job and life performance. If you're ready to move to the next level, then sleep has to be part of the plan. Check out our friends at ghostbed.com if you're ready to get your best sleep. I love my ghost bed. I've been sleeping on one for a couple of years and has made a huge difference in how I sleep. Hit ghostbed.com and use the code thefallibleman30 to get 30% off your order and start getting better night's sleep tomorrow. Now, let's go on to the show. Welcome back, guys. We're here with Dr. Caleb Valdez discussing men's role in childbirth and early parenting. Dr. Valdez, what purchase of $100 or less did you make in the last year that's had the biggest impact on your life? Ooh, this is a great one. Boy, there's a lot. One of my favorite things, just a little tea kettle, teapot thing, super cheap. I think it's $35. I use that thing every single day. At the beginning of the day, kind of warm up. I either do a cryo brew, poor tea, or some kind of a herbal tea mix, yerba mate. I'm a big fan of that. And then at the end of the day, a little protein shake in there just before bed, keep me burning some collagen peptides during the night and I'm good to go. So it's, you, it tastes you, like hot chocolate. It's you baked. warm up a protein shake? You do a warm protein shake? I do. It sounds weird. Um, I get the, <laughs> or the collagen peptides, organ collagen peptides. You mix that in. It's the consistency and the flavor of hot chocolate, and it just it keeps you from from burning lean muscle through the night. So that's very interesting. <laughs> I've never. I've been a workout buff for years, but I've never heard of like warming your protein shake in any way. Right. <laughs> so is that a stovetop kettle, or is that like one of the electrical quick kettles? Yeah, it's a little electric quick kettle, but I'm huh? that. If I had to, if the house was burning down, I'd grab that thing because <laughs> then I'd have something warm to drink while I waited for it to get rebuilt. We're big fans of the electric kettles here. My wife loves tea. So, and her and my mom both apparently put collagen and fiber into their hot chocolate at night before they go to bed. Perfect. See, this is what happens. I go to bed before they do, so I have no idea what they're drinking. <laughs> what they're drinking. I'm an early up, go to bed early guy. My wife is, uh, I get up when the kids get up and I stay up until like 11 or 12. So awesome. we swing, we're, we're on opposite ends of that most of the time. So I'm going to bed, she's brewing something. I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> so Dr. Valdez, the miracles happened, right? We're fathers officially with this tiny child that's now embedded in our heart because once they put that baby in your arms, it's there. I don't understand fathers who don't feel that way, but what are the first steps we need to take in this new relationship because now it's us and our spouse our partner and this baby right our circle just got bigger what are the first steps we should take 
I think there's this magic hour right after delivery where so much happens that sets up the hormonal cascade for mom and for baby. And dad can be a part of that as well. This is usually a time when mom, they've studied, she usually posts or responds to about 60 different texts or social media, you know, DMs about the birth and the baby. And she wants to post pictures and they look like a little pink potato at that point. They're not super (laughs) cute. It's okay if you wait for that hour to pass before you start posting everything and talking to everybody in the world. Just take an hour to be that little circle. You can excuse your birth team. Doctors and nurses can leave the room. You guys can just be quiet and alone. Count fingers and toes, you know, just take that time to really connect with each other and with that baby and start forming that bond because your body starts to release that oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. And it's the master hormone in the body that starts mom on the recovery process from labor and delivery. It actually causes what we call involution of the uterus. So it starts going back to its normal size and location. She starts producing breast milk. And that is time in baby-friendly hospitals is what they call them nowadays. It's pretty much standard practice everywhere outside of the United States that birth practices are, are incorporated on the international level. But they actually have co-sleeping. They have large hospital beds where dad can climb up there right next to mom and they can cuddle this little person. You can practice skin-to-skin contact with that baby. And while mom's resting or getting cleaned up or whatever she does, if dad just puts it on his chest, that skin-to-skin contact will share healthy bacteria back and forth the heat and the sensation of his heartbeat will start to regulate that little nervous system down and be like, hey, welcome to the planet, little guy. You made it. It was stressful. It's touch and go. Whatever it was, you can downregulate. You can have a nap. You're connected. You belong here. And that bonding hormone starts working when there's skin-to-skin contact like with that. And it's quiet. And you're not in this fight-or-flight mode anymore. Now you're in the rest, digest, just being present. And I think that is an essential part of that first golden hour, they call it right after that. That's not a time when babies should go to a nursery, go have a bath, go fill out paperwork, you know, look at getting discharged, any of that kind of stuff. As much as you can just eliminate the distractions and focus on being fully present as a husband, as a father, and keep that little person protected and connected, that's when if mom is breastfeeding, a great time for a lactation consultant or a midwife or a doula to come in and help with initiating the breastfeeding practice because colostrum, which is that first milk that baby is needing, that's when that starts to flow and come in most often. And that is so nutrient dense and healthy. And I think dads should be present for all of those discussions. They could be like, oh, honey, remember when she suggested this and this seemed to work? And they're learning things about latch and they're learning about, you know, hunger cues and rooting reflexes and all those things that dads are totally disconnected out. You know, they're out in the foyer calling their parents. They're excited. I get that, you know. But if they can stay present for those types of conversations and play a role in that, so much better they'll be equipped for those conversations and those moments later on down the road. Well, hey, you know, you're boosting my ego right now because I'm feeling it's like, hey, look, I did something right in my life. I yeah. stuck around for all that. It was an amazing time, right? That first hour after the baby was born, we didn't text. Sarah, my wife, cuddled the child up to her and I sat down as close to them. We started talking. We didn't pick up the cell phones and start texting immediately or anything. Just talked how she was and marveled at this new little life in our world. So, and uh, thankfully our hospital was really good about that. So good. They're like, it's yours. Okay. In about an hour and a half, we need to go ahead and weigh the baby and, you know, just do a once over. But this first time period, you know, if you want it, it's yours. It's like, yes, we want that. So I'm feeling good about my decisions in life there. That's 
<laughs> I made enough other bad decisions. I'm glad I started that right, right? Absolutely. No, that's really commendable. And it's increasingly rare. Unfortunately, we have a lot of parents who need to just be okay setting the phone down for a little bit. And all of those things can be done in the room. There's really no reason for mom and baby to be separated. And in the healthiest hospitals, with the best birth outcomes, mm -hmm. moms and babies are always kept together. Couplet care, they call it, or kangaroo care, dyads. There's a whole bunch of terminology around that of just keeping mom and baby together. And dad can be a huge advocate for that and be like, okay, well, why do you have to take them away? Why do we have to separate them? You know, again, those are conversations you can have with hospital administrators, with your OBGYN, with your, you know, your birth team beforehand so that you don't have to make those in the heat of the moment. So way I, to go. We lucked out. We had a really, the birthing center at the hospital where my daughters were born was really good about that. Like when they finally needed to weigh the baby and do the checks and stuff, I carried her. I went with the nurse. I stayed with the baby the entire time when they were checking her out. I was standing right there with them. There, the, there was no point she was out of our control in the first couple hours. And then we, ours was the kangaroo care. Like she stayed with us. Perfect. Unfortunately, that, that's how it's intended to be. The first one was premature. So she had to be under the lights for a while, but that happened in our room with me sitting right beside it and that right beside my wife's bed. So and it was a great experience. As a father, huh? like, how did that make you feel as a father? Like, don't you feel like you have a role, you have purpose there? I was insanely protective. Like you couldn't run me out of there. My my daughter, my first daughter was born premature and could not nurse. Like she didn't even have that developed reflex yet. Mm -hmm. And when she started developing that reflex, she was too weak to nurse on her own. It was a very frustrating time going through that. My wife was, bless her heart, was feeling so frustrated because she was working with a great lactation nurse who was trying to help her and the baby wouldn't latch or couldn't nurse, didn't have that drive to try and suckle. Mm -hmm. And so that was very frustrating. And then she was a swaddle baby. She was, she loved to be wrapped up real tight, but then she had to be under the lights for hours and hours a day unwrapped. Mm -hmm. And I felt so terrified because here was this thing. I was stand toe to toe with a bear over my kids without question. And here's this thing I was powerless to fight or do anything about, right? My size, my strength, my speed, nothing about the male part of me could do anything to fix the problem at hand. It's actually taken a lot of years for me to get okay, even when my kid's getting sick. When my kids get sick, I still get hyper frustrated. I get more edgy, not with them, but with everybody else because I feel helpless to make it better. It's that thing I can't fight. And so, yeah, early on, that was rough. We were in the hospital for we were in the ICU for a week and we were sleeping two of us in a room that's meant to have one adult and the baby. We would not let the nurses do the feedings. We would get up in the middle of the night. We had to feed her every three hours and we did all of them. We would not let the nurses help. We would not let her out of our sight. I would not go home until the last night. I finally went home when they said, okay, tomorrow you should be able to go home. We, I finally went home and got the house ready to come back and get her and the baby. But it was long. Our baby was really healthy compared to a lot of babies when they're born. I mean, we were very blessed that she was jaundiced and she didn't have a, that need to suckle yet, that drive to feed. But that was all that was wrong with her. For being almost a month early, she was at a healthy weight and size and everything else. But it just, in the moment, as a parent, I knew logically and rationally 
that we were very blessed and our baby was actually really, it could have been so much worse. But I was so hostile and angry at the moment because I could not protect my child any more than I could. And so that was a really rough time for us uh, starting out. So it was interesting for sure. Wow. And a lot of that is understanding what is in your control and what's in your power to influence and affect the outcome. And then at some point you have to just surrender the rest of, of, you know, what really isn't up to us. And that's a scary part there. And when people try to convince you that things that are outside your control are things that are in your control, that adds stress and vice versa. When they try to talk you out of exercising your role as a father and a protector and get you separated from that family unit, that's where things go awry. And we intervene increasingly in the birth process in this country. We're the only country in the world right now with a rising infant mortality, morbidity, and mother or maternal mortality rate. Every other country has reduced that significantly over the last few years. And the U.S. is the only one that we're going the opposite way. We're actually losing more moms and babies. And I think that's the result. It seems very backwards. We're spending way more than anybody else is. And we're doing more, quote unquote, we're intervening more, we have more C-sections than that's the most common surgical intervention in our country right now. We're spending so much money on epidurals, like you're, you know, refused on that incident. And we're doing so much that we feel like we have more control, but the opposite is happening. And we're losing control, we're losing the battle in so many ways, because we convince ourselves that we can control every outcome and every alternative. And sometimes babies are premature, sometimes they just need mom and dad present and feeding them through the night. And man, there's a special bond you get in the NICU when spending a week there. I work with parents who have spent months there, you know, with all kinds of these things. And so that's something we want to just acknowledge that leads to some PTSD and some postpartum stressors. You know, when kids get sick, it, that all comes back. So. Oh yeah. Sarah got pneumonia while she was there. We, oh, man. It was just such a ungreat situation with us barely sleeping and the room really wasn't made for two of us to be there. I was on my way back because we live about 40 miles away from the hospital. I'm on my way back to pick up my wife and daughter and I get a call from our nurse and she's like, hey, Sarah had to be taken to the emergency room. I've got the baby. She's fine. I'm like, right. I mean, I went into, I might've made the rest of that drive a little fast. Just saying (laughs) it's a possibility. Man. Yeah. But like I said, I knew logically there are so many parents who are in such a worse situation, right? We, Mm -hmm. our baby was essentially healthy and it was all treatable. There are parents who have to fight much worse fights. And it's like, I don't know, man. I just, that week was enough to, I was pretty vicious to anybody. (laughs) Uh, Well, and you bring up an interesting point because there's a logical conscious part of our brain. And mom, I see this, you know, through I adjust moms during labor and delivery and I'm there to adjust babies right as they come out. And I see mom's conscious, logical, problem solving part of her brain say, okay, that's my husband. That's my OB. This is my baby. This is all okay. We're safe. We're here. But the disconnected birth, you know, she has an epidural, she maybe an emergency C-section, or she's just so drugged up or disconnected that things just aren't on the subconscious level, on the very deep, visceral, feeling, responding, nervous system driven part of her body. She's, you know, she really doesn't know what's happening. And that oxytocin isn't, isn't hitting the, all the things are kind of backwards. And that leads to a lot of postpartum issues and stressors and things like that because it's not all about our conscious brain of saying, oh, you know, baby's reasonably healthy. We have it pretty good, you know? 
you can think that, but your body might have a different feeling or a different opinion. That's a very deep operating system level alarm system. And so we have to acknowledge that too. And anything we can do to bring the physiological, the automatic part of our nervous system in line with what a conscious side believes and behaves, that's what we should do. So a lot of times spending those hours together and that time of just disconnecting and focusing is good. So now, Dr. Vadez, you are a chiropractor and you mentioned that you make adjustments even during birth and with the baby after birth. What are the benefits to the mother and child to have a chiropractor right there? So chiropractic work, chiropractors are primarily nerve doctors. I'm focused on the nervous system. And when mom is in labor and that body is in that fight or flight mode, we want to restore as much balance as we can and make sure that things are moving like they're supposed to, the pelvis and low back and everything is aligned for optimal birth presentation. I, I know my role. I stay in my lane. And so I will wait until the OB or the, you know, the midwife, whoever's running the show can check their expertise off the list and then they hand it to me you know 20 seconds later sometimes and just say you know she's ready for a little alignment and i'll check the bones mostly in the upper part of their neck just to make sure that things are moving well that the lights are turned on in that nervous system i use pinkies most of the time and i've worked on NICU babies that are in isolettes you know where i can glove up i can go in there those are the coolest adjustments because they're hooked up to live monitors. I can see their O2 stats and their heart rate. And so when I make an adjustment to the nervous system of a brand new little body, it is so ready and primed to thrive that you can start to see improvements and reversals of stress patterns and this failure to thrive diagnosis and things. And I use about as much pressure as you, you know, you probably put on your eyeball before you start to see spots or like when you're testing a tomato at the supermarket, it's very light pressure nothing ever pops or cracks, you know, like we associate chiropractic adjustments with, but it's very specific. It's very gentle. And when it's aligned, boy, that brain and that body talk to each other like they were initially intended to. And a lot of times with, especially with C-section births, with some, you know, traumatic vaginal deliveries, there's something called birth trauma that can happen to that system where things get out of alignment, things get stretched or pulled, or babies just stuck in this fight or flight mode, you know, this defensive mode. And we can't be in growth and protection at the same time. So as long as the body is in this abundance mentality and I can kind of turn on the lights there, man, their little bodies, they know what to do. We just got to get out of the way. So that's what my philosophy is, is I adjust those little people. They don't have back pain or headaches or anything like that, you know, like, like we typically associate it with. It's all about optimizing that system and keeping them in the healthiest growth mentality that we can. Guys, if you're getting something out of this, please leave us a comment, go review a sample podcast, help us out. It helps us keep doing things like this. We answer all the questions in the comment section, but we are just, Dr. Valdez is just loading us up with all kinds of golden information here. Now, Dr. Valdez, can you help me separate and clarify some stuff here? What is the difference between just the term postpartum and postpartum depression? Because most time when men hear the word postpartum, we hear postpartum depression and it's a negative connotation immediately. I know it confused me as dad, but that's separate from just postpartum. Can you clarify that? Yes. So postpartum just refers to anything after delivery and however we define that. So there's kind of a terminology out there that I really like, which is the fourth trimester, which is kind of after mom's delivered the baby, how does she kind of get back into the swing of things as far as recovering from the birth? There's a lot of physiological change. We're reversing everything that happened in pregnancy. 
during the later stages of pregnancy, her body releases a lot of chemical called relaxin. And that acts on the ligaments in the hips and the joints of her pelvis, getting things ready to open and release and relax, as the name would imply, for easy delivery. And so that relaxin hormone will stay as she's breastfeeding. It kind of comes in little waves, but that oxytocin is designed to be there with it and the prolactin, which is the hormone that creates breast milk. And so all of these hormones work in symphony with each other. During delivery, there's a whole bunch of hormonal changes that mom undergoes. And one of the first things we do in the medical intervention side of things is we step into the middle of this hormone cycle and we start changing things around. That epidural, you know, where they put that needle in the low back and it blocks pain signals to the lower half of her body. Now her brain isn't running the show on any of that. It's the doctors and the nurses that are pulling and pushing and coordinating contractions and things. And it's kind of put her nervous system on the back burner for that intense and important part of this whole operation. And because of that, a lot of times she'll get a pain block. Now, a mom's threshold for pain is very personal, and she should always be the one to say when she's feeling too much pain and wants an intervention on that. I totally advocate for medical autonomy on that front. But she needs to realize there reaches a point where the brain can't process any more pain and it releases what are called catecholamines, which are very strong pain receptors like opioids basically to just kind of go into this Zen state where mom is, it's kind of a euphoric and very spiritual experience for a lot of them. And that's because these hormones are protecting her from the pain threshold that she has reached. And that's what triggers this oxytocin release and all of this stuff that has to happen naturally. And a lot of times when moms have sufficient levels of those hormones going, they've shown protective effects against postpartum depression afterwards. Contrast that with a mom who is disconnected, baby's gone, whisked out of the room, washed and brought back. And, you know, the baby smells like soap. It doesn't smell like mom. There's sensory cues that she's not aware of that are very operating very subconsciously and telling her, this is your human, like you did it, you're a mom now. And that bonding is so essential. And in instances where that is so fundamentally disrupted, we see moms that aren't quite ready to step into that postpartum role, or that are struggling with feeling like they're adequate. And the first thing we need to do is just consciously address it, say, Mom, you are enough, like this little person needs you. And as your husband, as the father, I need you to be present for that. So whatever I can, like, if it's the dishes that's stressing you out, if it's our next door neighbor who just won't leave you alone, like whatever it has to be, be that that defender for you and I'll take what I can on. But you need to do what you are uniquely qualified to do. And I'm going to help you do that. That is the first step to kind of addressing that postpartum stress is just letting her know she is enough. And there's some great experts out there that are far more versed in how to return to physical activity and physical intimacy and things like that postpartum, that, that timeline, that, that process is different for everybody and it should be. And that should be something that as a husband, we're very you know, sensitive to and responsive to those needs. And if that means taking some time off work, if that means unplugging technology or just being present for her needs and desires as she returns to functioning status, I mean, birth is, it'll take it out of a person. <laughs> There's, I'm really grateful. I'm never going to have to go through that, but uh, I'm really passionate about setting every mom up for success on the return journey after delivery happens. I, I think that's something that we as a society, we need to be a lot more aware of. And postpartum shouldn't always be paired with postpartum depression. 
it should be a celebration of getting her back on her feet and out in the community and getting that baby, you know, introduced to the world phases as you need. We actually did something that a lot of people, we got a lot of pushback from family members and friends, but we actually told no, everybody, no one was allowed to come over for the first 30 days. As it was, we had a roommate at the time and she actually would get up and do, Sarah would pump and she'd do one of the bottle feedings at like two o'clock in the morning. So Sarah and I could get a little more sleep, but my mom stayed with us to help with housework. So we weren't worried about that and didn't have to worry about that. But we told everybody else like, nope, it's just us. We need to learn what this looks like. We need to get into our routine. We need to see how this feels with having three of us here. And it angered a lot of people. <laughs> But I think it was a wise choice, especially Absolutely. in that preemie, like, you know, a month early phase with the baby. I think it really made a lot of sense, but it gave us that time to just be us, right? And figure out what that was going to look like. So let me. And a lot of that of kind of reassembling your tribe after that is built. It's just as much about keeping the wrong types of opinions and people away as it is bringing the right people in as well. And you look at how anciently our ancestors would do it, and we would have our tribe of you know roommates or extended family that would come in and out and help where they can. And that's not a bad thing, but yeah, it's a process and people need to respect the autonomy of that new family unit. And then when the time is right, get that baby out and exposed to the right kind of people. And I guess philosophically, it comes down to that thought again, is how much do I think this child is inherently flawed and weak and needs intervention? Or are we approaching this from a place of human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, we are created to thrive. So I'm going to trust this baby's immune system, I'm going to trust mom's immune system. There's incredible benefit from breastfeeding, you know, just from the immune system standpoint, and how much do we trust that, you know, evolutionary process or that divine creative creative process is protecting these little nervous systems, these little immune systems. And so you approach it with a with an attitude of confidence and a faith in humanity and a faith in the world around it and a faith in the design of the human body to keep you safe and healthy. That really helps the reentry process. So well, so many moms that I see right now that struggle with postpartum depression. It's these moms that have lived in the last two years in so much isolation and fear, you know, and some rightfully so with, you know, certain pandemic issues, but the majority of them just need to not be so scared of what they really can't control. Yeah. And just come at it from a place of confidence and it's going to work out. It always has for hundreds of thousands of years or however long we've been birthing babies, you know, it's, we've managed to do okay. Dr. Badez, for the expectant fathers and young fathers who are listening to this, what are the first three actionable steps our new dads need to move on after the baby is born and we go home? I'd keep communication open first and foremost with mom. There's a tendency for her to internalize a lot and kind of go inside herself. And you need to figure out a way that works for your relationship dynamic for her to ask for help when she needs it or tell you that she's uncomfortable when she needs it. And it's not going to be complaining if it's something that you can affect and that you can help with. And so just have that agreement in place that, hey, we're going to talk to each other if something's not right for one of us. And then anything that you can take on that to allow her to do what she is uniquely qualified and designed to do, that should be a thing. And you should take the initiative because if she's the one that has to tell you to get up and do the dishes or feed (laughs) the other toddler or dress them or whatever, 
you're still adding to her list of things to do. You know, you need to be that intuitive anticipatory partner that is of like mind with her and saying, okay, what are the things here that I can help her with so that she can just do what she needs to do? And then I think you touched on the last one of just creating that micro environment where you guys can bond and you're protecting her from those stressful voices or those anything that doesn't instill confidence and inspire her in her new motherly role as she kind of grows into that. And acknowledge that you have a fatherly role to grow into and to explore as well. And it's a changing dynamic. But if you can get on the same page philosophically with what that looks like, that golden hour after birth or that golden month that you just described, those are opportunities where you guys can support each other and figure out what it's like to have three now. And that might be telling, you know, a certain busybody, well-intentioned person who just wants to bring all the casseroles over and love on this baby that now isn't the time, you know, and advocate for that. And if you have to be the bad guy and fall on that sword for your wife, hey, you're taking that stress off her plate and she's going to be thankful that she didn't have to have that hard conversation. And, you know, guys, we'll, you'll bounce back from it, you know, but I would say those three things, just communication and then stepping into that role as a father and a provider so that she can do the same in her motherly role and then protecting that new tribe from those discouraging voices or those stressful sources. And I'm going to throw in my two cents here for one thing, guys, just a golden opportunity. This works for you and mom. Give the baby showers. My skin to skin time with my daughters was I took them the shower so Sarah didn't have to try and hold on to a slippery baby as she's still healing and stuff like that. She has skin to skin contact with them when she was nurturing them and feeding them. I continued that skin to skin time with them in the shower. I took our daughters and showered them and would take care of them while Sarah got showers. But that way, I still had skin contact time with my daughters, which we don't talk about how important that is for dads with babies, but you were talking about the scent recognition. Oh, it's huge. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the top of the baby's heads creates this pheromone that that we bond with. That's why baby's heads smell so so cute, you know. <laughs> so I'm hesitant to scrub it off with you know really strong smelling soaps, or a lot of times we'll put those little beanies on it because they look adorable. Mm-hmm. But those are blocking that scent communication, and that's there for a reason. So, but skin to skin, that's how our ancestors have always done it. Picture, you know, you know, a caveman tribe and how they would bond with their young and protect. You couldn't just leave them in another room because a predator would get them or they'd roll off a cliff or something. You know, you had to have them in the cave with you right next to the fire. And so don't be afraid and don't apologize for co-sleeping, for skin to skin contact, for just as much bonding time as you can get, because that's going to leave an impression. We kind of we don't always realize how much that programs the baby for bonding later on. Sarah's pointing out that our daughters actually still sleep with our t-shirts. That's what they wear for, that's what they wear. They're eight and 10 now. And to this day, every night it's dad shirt. Come on, it's time to get ready for bed. And our daughters sleep with our, whatever shirt we were wearing that day. That's their nightgown for the night. That scent still brings peace. And Mm -hmm. so Dr. Valdez, let me ask you, what is the most important takeaway you want men to hear today? I think there's a very strong messaging out there from Hollywood, from, you know, huge pharmaceutical companies that have a direct financial interest in sidelining dads from the birth and breastfeeding process. And if there's one thing that I would advocate for, it's for 
men to step into that role as the protector and the provider, be educated, go to the Lamaze classes, go to these OB visits, you know, have the awkward conversations and you're going to expose some ignorance that you had. You know, we don't know everything (laughs) as much as we think we know our wives. There's more to learn. There's more to understand. Talk to her and understand what she's doing, but be an active participant in this thing. Don't let anybody tell you, you can't have an opinion about this. You don't have a role in this because what you've described is a wish that was more the norm for dads defending the birth team from naysayers and advocating for connection and presence right after birth. And that those are all things that anybody can do. You don't have to have any special skill set or anything. I'm not special. I don't have any unique expertise other than I, I've gone into the research. I've formed these opinions that now more than ever, we need dads who are engaged, who are informed, and who are committed to matching their wives in their efforts to bring this into the world and who are there and present, you know, consciously, present time conscious of what their wife is going through. And yeah, you might miss a few sports games. You might not be able to go out with your buddies, you know, for a little bit, but it'll be worth it because you'll never get those formative moments back. And if you're present for those, you'll never regret that. What's next, Dr. Vance? I'm working on a new, another book. This one will be a little bit more controversial with parenting, but it's another parenting resource book. I'll leave that as a teaser and maybe you'll have you back on your show when that gets published sometime next year. Send me the book, um, require reading it before I talk about it, but send me the book and you're on the show. Absolutely. <laughs> I will, we'll look at that. I'm setting up a clinic in Salt Lake City that uh, caters to this type of chiropractic and this, these types of conversations with, you know, the tribe that aligns with this kind of philosophy. And I want to just keep sharing the message that Men have a role here and, and moms are enough. So our babies aren't starving for calories right now. They're starving for connection. They need engaged parents through this process. Where is the best place for people to find you? Starvingbabies.com is a great place to start. I'm building a little newsletter following there. And you can get the book on Amazon if that's something that interests you. I will respond to any email at info at starvingbabies.com. And if I can be a resource or point you in the right direction, I've had calls from OBs and doctors who challenge on different things. And moms will say, hey, call this guy and ask him about this because this is what I want. And if I can send them some white papers and help them see your side of things, I will always advocate for my patients and for parents to make an informed medical consent. So... Excellent. And guys, as always, we'll have Dr. Valdez's links down in the show notes, down below the video, whatever you're watching this on, whether you're on the podcast or whether you're on YouTube, we will have every way for you to connect with him and find out more. Dr. Valdez, thank you. This is an incredible conversation. Thank you for taking the time to advocate for men to be part of this. We need more engaged fathers. So thank you for fighting for us. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate it. As always, guys, be better tomorrow because of what you do today. We'll see you on the next one. This has been the Fallible Man Podcast, your home for everything man, husband, and father. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a show. Head over to www.thefallibleman.com for more content and get your own Fallible Man gear.